We're in the sixth night of our class on Maranasati, and uh, we'll begin again with the meditation. Uh, we'll do a quicker version of the meditation we did last Thursday, and but it'll it'll be extended into some new territory. So please find your posture. Please sit upright. Be comfortable. And we'll again start at the head. So putting your attention in your head, on your, on your head, and become aware, be mindful, know that there is skin on the head. So we're gonna go through the skin again, starting with the skin of the head, face, and then neck, the skin on both shoulders, and then very gently sensing, feeling, being aware of the skin in both arms, including the hands. And then the skin of the front and back of the torso, from the shoulders to the pelvis, genitals. So you're just mindful of skin, feeling, sensing, being aware, or simply knowing there's skin here, in the whole torso, and then the skin in the hips, both hips. Both legs. And both feet. And then coming up from the feet, we'll begin with the flesh, beginning with the feet and the flesh and the feet, and both legs, flesh. So again, feeling, sensing, being mindful, knowing that there is muscle, flesh in your feet, legs. both hips, buttocks. And then the flesh at the bottom of the torso, all the way to the top of the torso, from the genitals, pelvis, belly, mid-torso, chest, all the way to the shoulders. being aware of flesh. And then shifting your attention to both hands, 
arms and shoulders. And then being mindful of the flesh in the neck and head. As we're aware of those, first we're aware of the skin, now the flesh. Letting ourselves be very relaxed about the normalcy of having skin or flesh. And now being aware, mindful, fully knowing the bone that is part of the head. Including the jaw, neck. shoulders, the bones in both arms and hands, and the bones that are in the torso. chest, ribs, spine, hips, both legs, bones, both feet. If you, it helps to have an image, you can see the, the skeleton behind me that you're feeling that's sitting inside of you right now. And then we'll move from the mindfulness of the anatomy to the elements. And so starting with the feet, and going upward, sense the earth element. Actually, excuse me, start from the head and sense the earth element. Characterized most clearly by the bones and then going down from the head to the neck, to the shoulders, to both arms, to the torso, hips, both legs, the earth element, solidity. And then coming from the feet, moving upward into the water element. The liquidity of the body, the different liquids that are here. 
starting with the feet, legs, hips, into the torso, the hands, arms, shoulders, neck, head. And when we begin to become aware of, sense, feel, know directly the elements, we begin to come into contact with our elemental nature. Like everything in this world is considered composed of these elements, earth, water, and now from the head, going down, we'll feel the fire element, warmth, coolness, temperature in the head, neck, shoulders, both arms, hands, the torso from the shoulders to the pelvis and then into the hips, thighs, legs, feet. The fire elements also characterized by our contact with things, clothes, chair, cushion. And then again, flowing back upward with the wind element, the movement, the dynamism, aliveness, beginning with the feet, legs, hips, torso, the hands, arms, shoulders, neck, head, that we start to become aware of our elemental nature, that we are like the rest of physical reality, composed of earth, water, fire, wind. And it brings us then to the next phase of the Satipatthana, teachings that are very related to the wind element, also sometimes called the air element, because we can now become aware of our breathing as part of the wind-air element. And we can be aware of the breath that keeps us alive
And you all know that it's life begins with our first breath. And of course, ends with our last breath. And someday our breath will stop and our body will die. And the reflection on this, the knowing of this is related to the next component of Satipatthana, which has to do with the fact that bodies die. And so we can begin to practice knowing that each breath inspires us. Inspiration is what they call the in-breath. That it brings life into the body. Right now, it keeps us alive. And we can be very dramatic about it or very relaxed about it. Either way, they're both true. It's very dramatic. It's quite something that this breath is keeping us alive. And it's also very ordinary. We almost never even think about it, but that's what's happening. And we're being aware of it right now. And part of the teaching about death in Buddhism is that we never know when it will happen, not for any of us. We may have an idea or belief or hope or a wish but it's uncertain for all of us. What we know with this in-breath is that we're alive. But death could happen at any time. And so one of the ways we practice when we're working with Satipatthana is seeing that this could be our last breath. And you can very gently, very quietly add that to the in-breath. This could be my last breath. And then simply relax and let go with the exhalation where the breath is expired.
And as you're working with this practice today, if this is difficult for you or disturbing for you or causes you to lose your balance, then put your emphasis on the letting go and relaxing at the end of each breath. And if you're feeling balanced right now or at any time, then you can emphasize the first part, which this is, this could be my last breath. as part of letting the teachings of the Buddha seep into our consciousness so that the Satipatthana Sutta starts to permeate our experience, not just conceptually, but experientially, knowing this could be my last breath and then relaxing and letting go with the out-breath. Of course, for many of us, our minds, our thoughts say, no, this is not true. It's not going to be my last breath. Even, even if you're thinking this could be my last breath, there's often a part of us that doesn't believe it at all. Most of us think, even though we don't think we're going to live forever, we, most of us think we're going to be here a long time or not now is what we think. I'm not dying now. And part of the profundity of this kind of teaching as part of Satipatthana is to remember that every breath brings us closer to death. It's always one breath closer to death no matter when we're gonna die, in two minutes or an hour or a week or a year or 10 years, every breath is one breath closer to dying. So please work with the practice of Maranasati until you hear the bell.
Well, one thing, yeah, one thing you can do now is you can continue with the same practice while we're, while I'm talking and then while we're interacting, because you can continue to be mindful of your breath and with a little bit the same flavor of understanding, which is this could be your last breath, because it's true and we don't know. And it's part of the uh, web of reality that the Buddha points at by getting putting this teaching in the Satipatthana Sutta. And I'll just review for a moment where we've been. Remember, we began with the definition of what does it mean to practice ardent, fully aware, and mindful, right? And then the refrain that is comes after every practice, including this one, uh, which is about death. And the key to it is about um, uh, not clinging to anything in the world, not clinging to anything in the world. So that's the key practice or the key understanding, even though we're seeing it both internally and externally, and we're seeing it both uh, the arising and passing of everything, whether it's the breath or the, um, the um, elements or the, um, uh, the anatomy of the body. It's all arising and passing every moment, right? And we're not clinging to anything in this world, including the body, is the hope or is what happens when we practice. And remember, watch how you hear the not clinging. It doesn't mean we don't care about, we don't love, we don't appreciate, we don't enjoy, we don't miss things, but we're not, we don't cling to things, which is a different level of reality that we're often not aware of, is how much we're holding on to something that can't be held on to. And so um, in my way of thinking, what the first foundational lot is about is the normalizing bodies, right? We have a body, the body breathes, it has different parts to it, right? Skin, flesh, bones, right? And, and then in his time, especially, the elements were just part of cultural reality. It's not so much in our time here in the United States of America, but in many cultures, that's still a normal understanding of how reality is made up, the elements. And so, um, and, the, and also in his time and place, uh, life and death was much more normal, right? In, in India still at certain places, at least when I was there, you could see it in the streets, people were living and dying, and that was part of reality. And actually, we can see it here if we keep our eyes open, because it's happening everywhere, because it's a totally normal part of human life, which is the, sometimes I title this talk, uh, Normalizing Death, because it's totally normal. It's not a mistake. It's not that we've done something wrong. It's natural, and it really something. When I really want to sell it, I say, "Oh yeah, it's organic, right? That death happens, right?" 
you could get a, you could, you know, if we, if they could make money off it at Whole Foods, we'd have it at Whole Foods, death, right? But it's also part of just seeing the impermanence of everything. And there's a reality, and the reality is bodies die. All, all bodies die. All, all sentient beings will live and die. And the paradox or what's difficult for us is that's normal because it breaks the heart often when somebody dies or something dies. I mean, even, you know, many of us, many people, we love our pets when our pets die. I mean, really, I didn't think I'd ever quite grieve like my, when my first dog died, I just wept and wept. I just, you know, I was holding him and he died and it was like, just, you know, I couldn't believe it because I, I just loved him so much. And, uh, yeah, haven't hadn't thought about that until now. But, you know, and of course, people, we love people. We care about people, our, our, our parents or our children or our families or our friends or our community or just other people, you know. And so there's heartache with death, which means when i when i'm normalizing death i don't mean any of that stuff is gone i mean it's here but all of that is normal with death death is normal it's not a mistake and when i first started practice i i would go to zen center in san francisco early in the morning 5 30 in the morning because they had sittings where you could just go in and sit with everybody and, uh, and you didn't have to relate. And I liked that a lot when I was a young man. I could just go sit. And, uh, but what I really caught my attention was they would have a big wooden block. And they would bang on the wooden block to call people to practice. And they would, they would hit the block like that. And then they would hit it quicker. And if you weren't in the meditation hall, by the time that last happened, you couldn't get in. You had to sit outside. And what was interesting for me was on the block was there were these words written. And the words were, great is the matter of birth and death. And birth and death was always hyphenated. Birth, hyphen, and hyphen, death. Great is the matter of birth and death. Life passes swiftly, quickly, and is swiftly and is quickly lost. Awaken, awaken. Do not waste your life. So that was the call to meditation. And I think that call to meditation is quite powerful and quite, uh, it touched me. It touched me. And I love that they had. Great is the matter of birth and death. It's one thing. If you're born, you're going to die. You can't die without having been born. It's, one, it's not two things. It's one thing. And that's part of what happens when we start to practice a little more. We start to see, oh, it's one thing. This is it, life and death. And it's happening not just when our body dies, but in Buddhism, it's even understood that it's happening all the time. 
I think I had something here, yeah. Um, uh, yeah, this is from uh, Nana Taloka. Um, that there's a momentariness to existence itself, right? This is from the Vasudhi Maga, and he's, he's commenting on it. He says, uh, in the highest sense, beings have only a short instant to live as a wagon wheel when rolling as well as when standing still at any time rests on a single point of its rim. Just, just so, the life of being endures only for the length of a single moment of consciousness. Like right now, there's this moment of consciousness and we're here. And then the next moment comes. So, so we've lost. That previous moment has died. And he says, when this is extinguished, right, the single moment of consciousness, so also is the being extinguished. For it is said the being of the last moment of consciousness lived, now lives no longer, and will not live again. The being of the future moment of consciousness has not lived yet, now will also does not live, and will only live later. The being of the present movement of consciousness did not live previously, lives just now. So your life is right here. And everything that's happened before is gone. And everything that's going to happen is a fantasy or we're imagining. Who knows? We don't know. But it's a very powerful way to live one's life to actually be alive in this moment because this technically is the only moment there actually is, is right now. And part of the what mindfulness satipatthana is hoping is to bring us into harmony with the dharma and right dharma means truth it's bringing into harmony with the truth of the way things are of reality of this moment of this human existence <clears throat> and uh, coming into harmony about death is paradoxical because of the things I've, some of the things I've already said about the, the heartbreak that comes with death and dying and the loss of people and places we've lost. Also, places die, scenes die, worlds that we've lived in die. You know, our own sense of self dies and is reborn in that way. And I've had a little bit of experience with death. I was a hospice volunteer for many years. And uh, it was actually great to be a hospice volunteer, even though people always would say, it's so great that you do that. Really what's great is what you get by doing it, which is you get to see the magic of life and death, right? And the profundity, great is life, is birth and death. Remember the Zen phrase that I started with, it's, it's not just birth and death is one thing, that's powerful, but also they're saying great is the matter of birth and death. Great. It's not, oh, it's a drag is the matter of birth and death. No, it's great. It's, and the great to me means, oh, there's a profundity here of what it is to be born and to live and die. And, and the profundity is sitting in your seat, 
the magic or mystery or beauty or or uh, unfathomableness of consciousness itself that becomes embodied and that Satipatthana is attempting to support our embodiment of consciousness. And so I've worked in hospice. I, I, you know, I have a lot of really heart-moving stories about working with people who are dying. Even from the first person that I started working with, Stella, who, uh, who was a woman with cancer and who was dying. And I didn't even, I didn't know what to do or what is, I hadn't been trained. This is a long story. I won't tell you all of it, but, but I, I hadn't really been trained, but they sent me in to be with Stella, uh, even though they told me they weren't going to let me work with people because I hadn't been trained. And so I went in to work with Stella. And finally I said, you know, I'm not sure what I'm doing, Stella. And she said, oh, it's okay, honey. You know, we all need a little help sometime. And it was just beautiful to see the majesty of her heart, even though she was dying. And she knew she was dying. It wasn't like surprise, right? But her love and kindness and care was right there. Yeah, I have a lot of good Stella stories. I only spent a couple of weeks with her. And, uh, and um, you know, and I learned a lot about what does it mean to be present uh, and not just believe my ideas about what's happening, but learn by being right there, discover by being in the lived reality of death, which I was part of for a number of people. Yeah, a lot of different people in a lot of different situations. Stella, they'd taken into Zen Center because it was way before Send hospice had a building and and uh so I work with people there and I'd work with people in uh in you know hotels in the tenderloin where people were dying or I'd work in uh, Laguna Honda Hospital had a big ward and we used to work on that ward and just different people different places the other person who comes to mind who I just bow to and want to mention is JD JD was a man, this is during the AIDS epidemic at the beginning, and, uh, and uh, he was living in uh, a little zendo in the Castro, dying, and they asked me to come be, spend time with him, and I, I did. When I went there the first time, JD was like, he was lying flat, and he was like this, seemingly unconscious right he's just doing this and so you know i just gently put my hands on his and calmed his body a little and sat with him right and uh and i you know i was still learning how to be a hospice volunteer and help people and and so and he was you know you couldn't tell if he was there or not what was happening with him and uh and then at a certain point i said um, I'm, I'm going to move you, JD, which was uh, not always easy when people are, you know, the phrase that comes bone dead, they're heavy because the body's not really working anymore and there's a heaviness to it. And so I moved him and I said, how does that feel, JD? And all of a sudden he said a little bit 
like this. He said, it feels like I'm God and you're a saint. And, and it was loud and it was clear and, you know, it caught my attention <laughs> totally. And I thought, oh, he could be right, you know, and, you know, who knows what's going on really. But it was very moving to see that. And the interesting thing, I'll just tell you, because I just love JD, who is a great guy. He, uh, they kept saying, oh, he's going to die any time, and he could die any time. And, and, but he was in the, being taken care of by people. He was getting loved a lot by everybody who took care of him. And then he just didn't die, even though they said, oh, he's going to die in three days or five days, a week at the most. And then he never died. And they had to kick him out of the hospice because he got better. And he, yeah, I know, it's totally bizarre. And he, uh, you know, he lived like another nine months or a year. And, you know, it was like, God bless him, J.D. He was, he was something. Anyhow, so, and so also, I mean, the other place that I, you know, personally, uh, not just as a hospice volunteer, because there I also help train hospice volunteers and led grief groups for people whose family members had died, but also, you know, I have my own deaths of friends and, and relatives. And, and so I was fortunate enough to be with my parents when they were dying, especially my mother uh, spent a, a lot of time with her right as she was dying. And, and, uh, and it was very powerful and very sad. You know, I wasn't happy or it wasn't, it was like, you know, I, I wasn't wanting my mom to die and I wanted to support her dying because she was dying. And so I did the best I could and I wasn't, and she was at home and I, so I wasn't staying at her home. Um, you know, my dad was there, one of my other brothers was there and I was staying a little, just a little bit away from the house. What was interesting was one morning I woke up in this little motel room in Los Angeles and I got in the shower and I had this, something happened. I got a little transmission from my mother that she was ready to die. And I, and I didn't even, this wasn't me thinking this out. It's just what came, but I just, thought, oh, it's fine for you to go. You don't have to wait for me to be there. Please feel free to go now. And then after I got out of the shower, I got a phone call and the phone call said, oh, mom died right now. She just died. And so I'm pointing at that because I want to point to the profundity of reality and what we know and don't know about life and death. And I never thought, oh, I could communicate with my mother while I'm in the shower and she's dying or anything like that. And I don't, I don't know, did I, didn't I? Something happened and it was clear to me that it, all, I, all I knew was it's fine for you to go now without me being there. Uh, and she did. And I have heard other stories similar to that in, in the world of death that I've been around. And so part of what the Satipatthana and this part of the Satipatthana Sutta is doing is encouraging us 
to wake up about reality, about the truth, about the Dharma, and what's here, and see what happens as we start to open to it, even opening to our feelings, which may come, which may be uncomfortable about whatever it is, right? But what I would like to encourage is watch out for any of your ideas or beliefs or beliefs or imaginings about what happens or what's going to happen when you die or when other people die because one doesn't know. And I had, I mean, I've just seen so many what technically we would call good deaths and they weren't even Buddhists or people who were practicing, but they just, something got there when they were dying and they were there and you just felt it in the room. And the odd thing, the other thing that I like about the Zen center is saying about great is the matter of birth and death was I had the good fortune to be there when my daughter was born. And, and, and so I've been there at, you know, when her mom gave birth to her and also was there when uh, people have died. And it's a very similar realm of reality, actually. There's something, and by that I mean there's something numinous about it, or there's something um, uh, different than the usual. You're not in your usual reality. Believe me, when somebody's being born and coming out of somebody else's body, it's wild. And it's, and it's new life, just this is it. And it's similar in the end when people are leaving, when their consciousness is separating from the body, like, and the body dies. And who knows what happens to consciousness? I don't know what happens. But I've also had one other experience that I'll mention, which is my own kind of near-death experience, which I had you know, a number of years ago, which a lot of you know, have heard about a little bit about my bike accident. And they didn't know if I was going to live or die. Uh, and when I went to the hospital and, uh, and I didn't even have, there wasn't enough of me there to even think that way in it for the most part. And, uh, and I didn't really totally I wasn't really well um, metabolized until uh, sometime later, about nine months, a year later, I was talking with Jack Cornfield. Jack Cornfield had been at the hospital with me right after my bike accident. And I saw, and I hadn't seen Jack for a while. So I saw Jack and, uh, and I wanted to talk to him. I said, you know, I have a question for you. What happened? Jack said, what do you mean what happened? You know, your karma? I said, no, I don't care about karma. What happened? Because he was with me right after the accident. And he said, oh, you died. And that was the best thing that anybody could have said to me because it was true. Because something died. Eugene died in that bike accident. And then Eugene had some kind of rebirth and, you know, Whoever came back is still Eugene, but it's not the same Eugene who had that accident. That's clear to me. And, and there was some kind of uh, 
unplugging from Eugene that we could call death. And uh, it was very powerful. And it's the one thing is I have no desire to die, but I have no fear about dying, to be honest. I just, I feel like, oh yeah, been there, done that. And there were some wild things that happened in the hospital when I got unplugged in the way that I got unplugged. And they were very, um, yeah, very wondrous, actually. And I don't know what will happen when I die, but I'm open to seeing what happens when I die. Because I don't know what happens to consciousness. And a little bit when, when that accident happening happened, I got to see how wild consciousness is and where it can go. And that was illuminating and freeing also. And of course, I'm not suggesting you all need to have a bike accident or near-death experience, but I'm trying to give you some frame of reference for why I'm talking about this and how I'm talking about it. Because you're going to see for yourself. Here, this I promise you, this is the one for sure thing. You're all going to die, right? every one of us and it's not a wrong thing or a bad thing or a mistake you may not want to die but death is normal and death death is part of the deal and so there are a lot of um, reflections that can come with contemplating death and one is about appreciating life because this is it. We're here right now. And none of us knows when we're going to die. Because, of course, this could be our last breath right now. And so is it okay to appreciate or enjoy or discover what is it to be alive? Because we're here and we're not going to be here forever. Hmm. This is from a woman named Diane Ackerman. She said, when you consider the inevitability of death, after which we may well go out like a candle flame, then it, doesn't, then it probably doesn't matter if we are awkward sometimes, or if we care for another too deeply, or are excessively curious about nature, or are too open to an experience or enjoy a nonstop expanse of the senses in an effort to know life intimately and lovingly. It probably doesn't matter if we, are sometime, if we sometimes look clumsy or get dirty or ask stupid questions or reveal our ignorance or say the wrong thing, or if we light up with wonder like the children that we all are. Right, and so we all are here, and Diane Ackerman understands that we're we're going to die, and so can we start to relax about being here because we're not going to be here forever? And of course, I have a million great quotes about death, which I would love to read them all to you, but there are way too many. I will give you a couple because it's one of the few things that I'm attached to is reading quotes. Um, 
just to, to broaden it culturally, um, Steve Jobs, who I think most people know who Steve Jobs is. Do most people know who he is? Yeah, okay, he's like somebody, he was somebody. He said, uh, remember that you were going to, remembering that you were going to die is the best way I know to avoid the trap of thinking you have something to lose. Remembering that you are going to die is the best way I know to avoid the trap of thinking you have something to lose. You are already naked. There is no reason not to follow your heart. It's an interesting semi-Buddhist perspective from Steve Jobs, that there's nothing to lose. In other words, there's nothing to hold on to, right? You're already naked. No reason not to follow your heart. Or from Mahatma Gandhi, great saint, really, Gandhi. He said, live as if you were going to die tomorrow. Live as if you were going to die tomorrow. Learn as if you were going to live forever. Right? That's a beautiful understanding of how to practice the Dharma. Practice the Dharma as if you were going to die tomorrow and keep discovering the Dharma as if you were going to live forever because there's always more to learn, to discover, to wake up to. And I, oh, I just can't resist. This is, uh, no, I will, I'll resist that one. Okay. Um, no, maybe I won't. It's just too powerful. And it's from Alison Wright, who is a woman Buddhist practitioner. This was written in or published in 2005. And she'd been going to meditation retreat in India. And she was uh, in, uh, in Laos on a bus. And uh, a, uh, a logging truck screeched around the corner on a remote Laotian jungle road and slammed into the bus she was riding on. Her, her left arm was shredded to the bone as it smashed through a window. Her back, pelvis, tailbone, and ribs snapped immediately. And then she goes on to say, my spleen was sliced in half and my heart, stomach, and intestines were ripped out of place and pushed into my shoulder. With my lungs collapsed, my diaphragm punctured, I could barely breathe. I, was, I could barely breathe. I was bleeding to death inside and out. And it would be more many hours before I received real medical care. Um, she said, um, breathing in, breathing out, like we were doing earlier, she said, I consciously willed myself not to die. I concentrated on the life force, uh, about, on the life force if fighting its way into my lungs, right? Fighting its, so we were saying, you know, this could be my last breath with the inhale. Well, that was true for her. And so she paid a lot of attention to it. And she goes on to the end. She said, as along with my breath, pain became my anchor. As long as I could feel it, I knew I was alive. I thought back to the hours I had sat in meditation, fixated on the cessation of my leg falling asleep. That discomfort could hardly compare to the torment from my injuries, but I discovered that meditation could help, still help me focus 
and remain alert. And I'm convinced it saved my life. It saved my life. I managed to calm myself, slowing my heart rate and the bleeding, and I never lost consciousness or went into deep shock. In fact, I never felt so aware, so clear-headed, and completely in the present moment. She said a lot of time passed, uh, no help had arised. She opened her eyes. It was dark. She was surprised to see that darkness had fallen. That's when I became convinced I was going to die. As I closed my eyes and surrendered, and I'm going to add my word, as I closed my eyes and let go, an amazing thing happened. I let go of all fear. So she says that as I closed my eyes and surrendered, an amazing thing happened. I let go of all fear. I was released from my body and its profound pain. I felt my heart open, free of attachment and longing. A perfect calm enveloped me. A bone deep peace I could never have imagined. There was no need to be afraid. Everything in the universe was exactly as it was meant to be. Everything in the universe was exactly as it was meant to be. In that moment, I felt my spiritual beliefs transform into undeniable experiences. Buddhism had taught me the concept of interbeing, the idea that the whole universe is a seamless mesh in which every action ripples across the whole fabric of space and time. As I lay there, I felt how interwoven every human spirit is with every other human spirit. I realized that death only ends life, not this interconnectedness. A warm light of unconditional love encompassed me, and I no longer felt alone. So those are some thoughts on the Satipatthana piece about death. And just technically, I know I didn't say this, but I sent it out to you in the, in the pieces from Bhikkhu Bodhi and uh, uh, Analyo. It's all about what happens to bodies as they decompose, right? As they're put in the charnel ground and the people at the time of the Buddha didn't have enough money to pay for them to be burned. And so they're left out. And so they just decompose and they ferment and rot and uh, come apart over time. And uh, some of this, I want to give my uh, bows to Venerable Andalio, who's, I used his meditation practice last week and this week, and will continue to use it because I find it a very helpful way to start to integrate the Maranasati teaching in our practice as well as in our hearts and minds. So we have some time now for comments, questions, please, anything about the meditation, about the talk, about life or death, right? Please feel free to raise your hand by going to the participants. I believe that's where you go. It's either participants or chat. Miru, okay. Hi, Miru.
Hi, how are you? Good, Thanks. where are you? I'm oh, sorry. there, I'm going to put you on, on uh, speaker view. Hi. 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 For the um, class always, uh, about the, the Steve Jobs um, quote that you mentioned, I think it was from his commencement speech at Stanford. And I actually happened to, uh, so I worked at Apple for a while, for about eight years, and I worked when he was still alive at, at the company too. So um, after he passed away, I was there when he, when he died. Um, you were, wait, you were, you were at Apple or you were yeah. with him? No, I was at Apple working okay. there. Yeah. And when he passed away, I was, um, I was still there uh, at Apple and uh, we had a sort of an internal memorial service for the employees and they passed out this uh, booklet uh, from the service and it was actually the commencement speech that he had at the Stanford. So if you don't mind, I wanted to share a couple more words from the speech okay. about death. So there, there were three parts and the last part was death. And he said, he starts the death part. Um, when I was 17, I read a quote that went something like, if you live each day as if it was your last, someday you'll most certainly be right. Uh -huh. It made an impression on me. Uh, and since then for the past 33 years, I have looked in the, in the mirror every morning and asked myself, if today were the last day of my life, would I want to do what, I want, what I'm about to do today? And whenever, whenever the answer has been no for too many days in a row, I know I need to change something. Remembering, remembering that I'll be that soon is the most important tool I've ever encountered. A little, little slower. Say it, you want people to yeah. get it. Yeah, thank sure. you. Remembering that I'll be that soon is the most important tool I've ever encountered to help mm. me make the big choices in life. Because almost everything, all external expectations, all pride, all fear of embarrassment or, or failure, these things just fall away in the face of death, living only what is truly important. And there comes your, what you mentioned, remembering that you are going to die is the best way I know to avoid the trap of thinking you have something to lose. You are already naked. There's no reason not to follow your heart. And then he talks about his cancer um, that he was diagnosed. And he goes on, no one wants to die. Even people who want to go to heaven don't want to die to get there. Yeah. And yet, Death is the destination we all share. No one has ever escaped it. And that is as it should be because death is the very likely the single best invention of life. Mm. It's life change agent. It clears out the old to make way for the new. Mm. Right now, the new is you. They're talk he's talking about the, the new, new graduates. But mm -hmm. someday, not too long from now, you will gradually become the old and be cleared away too. Mm -hmm. It's a bit so dramatic, but it's quite true. Your time is limited. So don't waste living someone else's life. Don't be trapped by dogma, which is living with the results of what other people are thinking. Don't let the noise of others' opinions uh, drown out your inner voice. And most important, have the courage to follow your heart and intuition. They somehow already know what you truly want to become. Everything, everything else is secondary. Mm. Yeah, so... Um, Beautiful. Yeah, yeah, no, he, he knew something. Yeah, he did. he did, you know, and I, I don't, I didn't know him personally. I didn't know much about him except that he changed the world a little bit, you know, with his vision. Yeah, a, a bit of a side story is that um, this was 2005 and he suffered from cancer a couple of years before and he mm -hmm. died in 2011. 
Um, but he knew when he gave this speech, he already knew that he had a terminal case. He didn't expose it to the, any public media because then, you know, the stock price would go down and whatnot. Um, but the last 10 years of his life, the, all the decisions he made about the product was very decisive and sometimes it was very risky for the company. So internally, sometimes mm-hmm. it was very risky for the company too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, internally yeah. we're thinking, he's, he must be crazy. Why is he making yeah. that decision? Yeah, yeah. But now looking back, it all makes sense because yeah. he knew that he was going to die. He wanted to do right. everything he used to do. Right. Well, yeah. he was a little crazy. <laughs> yes. In a good way, you know, yeah. and we all sometimes worry about what other people would think, and he didn't worry about that. Yes, yeah, so I need to share that. Thank you for bringing yeah. that up. Sure. Thank you. Appreciate uh, the Dharma. Who else? Do we have anybody else who wants to say anything? Paul. Okay, Paul. Hi. There you go, Paul. There you are. Hi, Paul. Uh, I've been coming to the class for the last several times, and it's the first time I've spoken, and I just I, I wanted to... Um, <clears throat> say that I feel really fortunate to be part of uh, this San Francisco group. I don't know if everybody is from San Francisco who, who is here, but... Uh, no, I don't either. But uh, anyway, it's good to be yeah. with you all. And um, uh, I, I, it was, I was just um, thinking about how, uh, uh, you know, it's interesting that the the... Um, practices around death are in the first foundation Um, because the first foundation is really about the body right and um, you know I guess part of it is that the body you know it's it's bringing to mind the impermanence of the body Uh the body Um, but one of the things that I've been um, in my, my practice over these last several weeks since, um, <clears throat> you know, sheltering at home and just being with the whole reality of what's happening in the world and mm-hmm. how it's affecting my life uh, is um, I've been realizing how important the body practices are, you know, being with the breath, being with the body mm-hmm. because of just the uncertainty of the future which is, mm-hmm. of course, it's always uncertain. It's always mm-hmm. uncertain, you know, when we're going to die or yeah. what's going to happen to us, what's going to happen. But now it's really uncertain. Yeah, and well, it's true. Mind. Now, you, you're saying a great thing because you're pointing to the cultural milieu, which is worldwide, that we're all dealing with, which is death, illness and death. And we are all dealing with it. And it's very important to see... What does it mean or how can we become embodied in this time and have some wisdom and compassion to deal with a very difficult situation which may get a lot worse? We don't know yet, but already there's been, I believe, more deaths in America than any country in the world from, from COVID-19. And so we're all, we're all dealing with it, right, with death. And it's normal. You get and and epidemics are normal. They happen in human life. 
it's not even like the first time it's ever happened, right? It may be the first time in our lifetime, but it sure happened in other lifetimes in the world. And so, but so I'm glad you bring that in the room and in the space because we're all dealing with it. And the the um, the body practices, just being with the body, being with the breath, I've been finding have been really uh, important in just um, keeping myself with what is just simple, um, what is you know what is right here, right now. What what is one thing I can be mm-hmm. you know confident about? Right. And and you know it's all. Uh, I guess part of you know part of the how the, the just how uncertain the future is mm-hmm. makes it a little bit easier to let go of it because you know there's a, there's not a lot of planning going on right now because it's just not you know right. it's, there's it's hard to plan anything. But you you it's beautiful because you're seeing what happens in this kind of situation. It's similar to birth and death. It like everything gets very real, and and it's simple. You know, when somebody's being born, there's only one thing you're doing. You're doing birth. And when somebody's dying and you're with them, that's all you're doing. You're not worried about, oh, am I going to get my, my, oh, is the restaurant going to be open later before this person dies? No, you just, you're with them. You're, you're doing it with them or you're supporting them while it's happening. And it's simple in that way. And that, that was one of the paradoxes of hospice practice. It was just very simple. What's happening now? What's needed now for this person? You know, for JD, all that was needed was to put my hands on his hands so he didn't flop around totally. You know, and, you know, and just very, yeah. So I'm appreciating you bringing the simplicity into the room, into the space of our practice because it's so important and it's part of what the Dharma is pointing us at. Can we be here now? And you're saying something especially about, can we be embodied here now? Because this provides some ground to deal with whatever the hell is happening, including coronavirus. Yeah, Yeah, thank you so much. Sure, thank you, glad you're here. Me too. Good, good. You you can fully be glad for anything that you're glad about. At least, you know, until I hear something I don't like that you're glad about. <laughs> I'm kidding a little bit. Okay, Don. Hi, Eugene. I know it's really dark. It's oh, yeah, it's Heather. Heather, Heather, Heather masquerading as Don. It's a wonderful Don. Um, Hi, Don. Hi, Eugene. Um, and hi to the class. Uh, so yeah, can you just, is like the dark thing because we're talking I have about a, that? I have a headache no. and that's keep, actually, keep it dark. Great. Actually why I'm, I'm wanting to talk is that, um, so as, as you know, the class isn't new. So I work in healthcare right. and I was off work dealing with uh, migraine, serious mm-hmm. migraines for a couple mm-hmm. of weeks. And, actually last week doing very, very well. And then I went back to work yesterday. And um, today I had a really, really bad day, you know, terrible migraines, lots of stuff going on. I have a big job with a lot of pressure. And I I use my practice to stay calm. 
I got outside, I went for a walk, I, I did everything I could to take care of myself. But I think that what's coming up for me in doing that practice tonight, and I've done this practice before with you on retreat, mm-hmm. and um, is the, the piece about chronic, um, chronic pain or chronic illness, because it's like this in-between of yeah. life and death, right? Yeah, it's yeah. not like you can fully live and I'm yeah. sorry, I'm going to cry a little bit. And okay. you're not dying. Right. It's just this really painful place to be in. And yeah. I know other people are taking the class are also having similar sufferings. And I'm just wondering if sure. you have any. Um, it's purgatory is what you're describing. Yeah. A kind of purgatory. And it's really hard. And that's harder than dying, in my opinion. Right, pain, physical pain, which is what migraine is, is really hard. I mean, and and managing it is hard because you can take drugs to manage it, and then you're out of it mm-hmm. if you take too much drugs. And and I know a lot of people these days who are having a lot of migraines. I have very close friends who, like, that's their dukkha that they're dealing with. They have right. very good lives, but there's a certain form of suffering that's going around that's called migraines these days. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't have any simple, easy answer. I wish I did. But how kind can you be to yourself when the migraine's here? And then how kind can you be when the migraine is gone? Right. Becomes the question. Right. Because it's dukkha and you're feeling it. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. And yeah, it's it's really a good question for you and for all of us who will have different kinds of dukkha at times during this class, right? Because it's during life and life it has dukkha in it. And yeah. So, and I always feel very, my own grief about the migraines because I wish to hell I could help people more because it's not my duke. I don't have migraines, but it's just like, wow, that's horrible. It's, and I've heard some detail about it and it's hard. So, um, you know, may you be well. We can all send you our meta, really. Thank Because that, that's better than nothing. That's for sure. Okay. What do we have here? Um, Michael. Oh, no, uh, sorry. It's Sina. Hi. I know. I knew it. I couldn't remember your name, so I knew it wasn't her. She doesn't like to talk. <laughs> no, I, I was trying to get her to talk, but maybe <laughs> I hope you can get her at least to talk to you. If she doesn't have to talk yeah. to me, come it's on. What's that? It's pretty lonely in here in quarantine. No one to talk to. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and remind me of your name. I forget your name. Mel. Oh, you're Mel. And yeah, you're... Tina. Oh, you are. Okay. I thought I had it mixed up. I had it the other way. Okay. Got it. Okay. Sorry. I, I thought Sina was your name. So, and yeah. I'm pointing at, at you, Mel. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. okay. Go ahead, Sina, please. Uh, so I wanted to ask about the, 
the idea that in every moment we're every moment we're dying and being born again. Uh-huh, yeah. And just experientially how what that means. Is it is it something that you experience in a very high state of concentration or you can, um, yes. Kind of, I I know that at some level we're we're putting this conceptual layer of continuity over our experience, or at least I've I've heard people describe it in this way. Mm-hmm. But I was wondering how I could bring that into my own practice. Uh, yeah, it's usually experientially uh, known uh, in deep states of samadhi or long retreat. It's like like you you know it. And even that is too much what I'm doing, but I'm trying to convey it. And uh, yeah, but also, I mean, just on another level, it's just true right now, right here. I mean, is this, is this the last moment? Where's the last moment gone? Mm-hmm. I'm asking, that's a question for you. Look, look for yourself. Mm-hmm. Right? Do you remember a while ago you you were telling me your name? Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's gone. Right? And that was gone in a moment. You said it, and then it was gone. We do put, like you say, we're, we're putting a, an overlay of continuity on something. And it makes sense, you know, right? I'm Eugene, I'm giving a talk, and I said this and that, that, and that, and that, and that's all true. And yet, in the experiential reality, it all, each, each thing, it's just a moment. It's just right now. Boom, boom, boom. And even the one who knows that is boom, boom, boom. But it's hard, it's not easy to feel that experientially. But it's knowable even still, because, you know, I mean, even, even if you, I mean, usually it's easier if we give it little wider gaps. Like five minutes ago, we felt one way, and now we feel another, right? It's gone. But we don't usually see it in the minutiae of... Mm. And so on retreat, when things get very slow, it's just, it's kind of wild. And it can be very sublime, actually, because there's nobody even seeing any of it, even, even though it's being known. Does that make sense, the last part of what I said? Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah. good, 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 good. Okay. 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 Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Uh, Michael. Hi, Eugene. Hi. Hey, first of all, thanks for the series you're doing, this series of classes. I very much appreciate it. Um, and everybody's involvement. Um, a couple things come to mind. Um, 
I think from you a couple of years ago and also your friend, Frank Ostaseski, mm-hmm. I've, I've gotten into this, um, this last breath idea in some of my meditations, particularly when I wake up, which is frequently um, at night with insomnia. Yeah. 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 Good. Oh, and, and you were talking a couple sessions ago and I think this is what you were getting at, but I wanted to be clear. You were going to share with us part of your meditation practice that I think you use. I don't want to put words in your mouth for, for your own perhaps insomnia during the night. So that Mm -hmm. was one thing. Sure. Well, I'll answer that quickly. I do the body scans in the middle of the night. I just start doing skin, flesh, and bones. Mm-hmm. And, or, 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 and, and then I do it more, um, not so specifically. I just do this different parts of the body without even thinking skin, flesh, and bones. Mm-hmm. But I'll do it either way. And so I'm just running my attention through the body and uh, breathing and that's it and often often that allows something relaxes in my body and i go back to sleep instead of whatever i'm worrying about i'm now focusing a little on my body and the meditation and that lets my mind relax i understand and i find it helpful too going to the elements just Going to kind of the basics, you know, Mm -hmm. earth, air, fire, water, Mm -hmm. and that's all we really are. And Mm -hmm. despite what's going on or our anxieties, et cetera, Uh that too just seems to really be calming for me. So that's when Analyo teaches the elements, he always says, something about the elemental nature it's it's not self right and i don't throw that in because it's just not not my way of teaching not self but right it, but, it, it yeah takes but it's it not a, a complexity that maybe isn't really necessary well when, it's true but most right. people aren't that tuned into earth air fire and water so uh, if if i could the the uh-huh. um the last breath thing has been surprising to me in a, in a good way, too. Um, I've been surprised as I've practiced some of that, like, wow, what if this were your last breath, that I'm not really hung up like I think I would have been just a few years ago on, like, things not done, things not accomplished, just like, Hey, it's cool. I mean, it's it's what I am and what I've done, and I've done the best I can. I haven't murdered anybody. So you know, slow down. So what you're pointing at is a certain kind of equanimity. Yeah, and that's really beautiful. Part of practice is we see exactly what you said. You you've done the best you could, and it's good actually. Yeah. Yeah. The, there, there's a basic goodness that I think we all have. And if when I'm touching into that, I, it's like, I'm cool, you yeah. know? 
I mean, I'm cool. Well, you're cool even when you're not touching into it, but <laughs> it takes longer for you to figure that out than for me. Yeah. Lastly, you, you spent time with your mom at her death. And just a year ago now, my mother died in a nursing home. And I, too, got to spend a lot of time with her. Mm -hmm. And there's a gratitude today, right this moment, that she passed prior to this COVID thing, which, as you know, can just be super dangerous in a nursing home situation. Yeah. And so I just, like, boy, that would have been a really worrisome piece to what was all it could be let me say it i'm going to change your language it could be and we'll see because we've all got to deal with it because we're all dealing with it mm. wherever our people are right and nursing homes seem to be can be a very dangerous place uh, you know and you know we're going to deal with it because we've got to deal with it yeah right. thanks so much Sure, thank you. And just there's one last person, uh, Karen. I'm going to unmute. Hi, it's actually Francisco again. <laughs> oh, okay. Hi, Francisco. <laughs> You're always sneaking in under Karen. Yeah. <laughs> um, Can I give you some instruction, Francisco? No, me. I'm listening. Stand up when you fall asleep. I watched you fall asleep even here. Stand Thank you so up. much. Really? Okay. You, you, yeah, okay. Okay, okay. I won't bug you anymore about standing. But. No, 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 that's fine. Yeah. That's fine. Keep bothering me. Yeah. So what else? Quick question, because we're at the end of time, Francisco. Okay. Uh, this is not a question. This is, this is something that happened to me. Just mm -hmm. the same experience that you had, a near-death uh, mm -hmm. accident mm -hmm. so the same thing happens to me uh, uh, bicycle accident this man made a made a, uh, a legal u-turn and hit my bike mm -hmm. it hit it so hard I went down mm -hmm. I broke my my helmet and two pieces mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. and I for the first time in my life I passed out I mm -hmm. passed out and then I didn't feel anything no pain, nothing. I was, I was out. Mm -hmm. I was out. Uh, I don't remember whether it was seconds or minutes, but I fell on, my, on the cement on my hand and my head like this. I was like this. Uh, I, after I woke up, I was in a very, very excruciating pain. And even the ambulance, even, even to go inside the ambulance was so painful. So I, I went to the hospital and they put, they brought me up every, everything, my back and my neck. I couldn't move my neck. And so when I tried to move it, I, I, I couldn't move it. And so I said, no, 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 no. I don't wanna be paralyzed. I don't wanna be paralyzed. I'd rather be dead. Mm. That's what I said to myself, I'd rather be dead but I don't want to be paralyzed. I couldn't move my neck. I couldn't move my, my, my shoulders, couldn't move my hands. Then it, that, that's when I thought I was, I was, I was paralyzed. Mm -hmm. Now, 
my pain. I stayed there until probably four o'clock in the morning in the hospital. And I was thinking about the men who hit me. Uh, did, I, did I send him meta? No, no. I did not send him uh, loving kindness. I did not send him loving kindness. I was, okay. I was in so much pain. Yeah. So is, I'm, I'm not sure why you're saying all this. What are you trying to get to? You're going to get to that, that I, uh, that I fell for a moment that I was dead. And then I woke up. Uh -huh. when, I was, that was, when I was dead, I didn't feel anything. Uh -huh. It was so peaceful. It was so peaceful. Uh -huh. Okay. And when I woke up, it, uh, the, the pain came back. Mm -hmm. Because I was alive. Right. My pain came back. Okay. So that, that's what I'm saying. The, 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 the contrast of being, of being out and being alive, if I didn't have anything, I would be, I would be peaceful. But it was in a very, very, very painful situation. Mm -hmm. That brought me, that brought me a lot of anger toward this, toward this, this man. Uh -huh. Okay, so that's why I said to myself, should, should I, should I send him meta? Why, why, why don't you send meta to yourself? Because you're the one with the anger. I, I did. Good. Did, but it's, you're, you're, it's your no anger. Money. It's but my, my, my pain didn't stop. You no, know, your pain's not going to stop from metta. You're going to have pain, but your reaction to the pain is your reaction. And you were mad at the guy who hit you, which makes sense, and it's still your reaction. And that's where the dukkha is. Does that make sense what I'm pointing at? Makes sense, Eugene. Yeah, because that's what's hard for all of us is somebody does something and we get angry and it's their fault. But we're the ones who end up angry for a day or a week or a year or a lifetime. Yeah, because I, I was the one who, who was suffering. I well, was the one. No, you, you, yeah, you had pain. But you don't know what he had. You don't know what happened for him, or at least I haven't heard any of that. Like he might have been sorry about it all. But but one doesn't, you don't know unless you ask him. And so this is what I'm just pointing at. The reactivity is where the dukkha is. And it's normal. I'm not saying it's not normal to have that kind of reaction especially when we're in pain. But, but dealing with our reaction is part of what the Dharma asks of us. Yeah, but a lot of, a lot of, a lot of negative thoughts came sure. on. Sure, yeah, yeah like, make, makes like, sense. I, you know, I was doing, I was, I was uh, I was minding my own business, and, and suddenly, 
this, right. this man hit me from the back and then I then I, I don't remember how many feet from from where I was All right yeah no it totally you know horrible but but the fact that he did that is horrible but it's your anger is still what you're dealing with in addition to the pain your reaction is what you're dealing with so we're going to have to stop yeah 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 thank so you so much keep breathing okay <laughs> okay thank you all yeah, we're going to end now, everybody. I'm going to read one last thing. And just before I end, I'll just remind you about Donna for to SFI. And you can go on PayPal now and uh, to San Francisco Insight. Uh, and then it'll, you have options about where you want the Donna to go and how much and all that stuff. And so thank you for your generosity. We appreciate it very much. It helps keep everything going for all of us. And um, anything else I should add, Jeff? I think you're you're here, Jeff. Yeah, you're here. Anything else I need to add or not? You're good, Eugene. We're good. Okay, great. Okay, Karen, you want to mute yourself? Sorry. Thank you. Thank you. Um, okay, so we're okay, Jeff. Here's the last thing I'll just read to you. It's a chant and we can end with this. Then I'll ring the bell and we'll end. It's from, uh, it's a Buddhist chant about death. And it, it goes, Anicca Vata Sankara Upadavaya Dhammano Upakitu Nirajanti Te Sang Upasamo Sukho and what it means is all conditioned things are impermanent. All conditioned things are impermanent. Their nature is to rise and pass away. To live in harmony with this truth brings the highest happiness. All conditioned things are impermanent. Their nature is to rise and pass away. To live in harmony with this truth brings the highest happiness. May you all be well, safe, healthy. I'll see you again next week. And may that good wish that all be well, safe, healthy, go out in every direction, touching beings in this world and every world. May all beings be happy, peaceful, free from the coronavirus, free from our reactions, free to be to realize our Buddha nature, the nature of wisdom and compassion. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.